This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That mentioned then Mark about the fact that you found out you were getting the job in a quite hectic manner how did it feel to finally become the manager in first team football yeah I was delighted I, I generally was Callum I, I really enjoyed the sporting director role learned so much uh, in a short period of time I was comfortable because you could apply the experiences and the skills you'd learned in your previous city role into that role so I felt very comfortable doing it it's how you speak to people the environment you create the respect you show people, etc. So that was very positive for me. But getting the first team job was what I really wanted. It gave you, it gave me a chance to, to do what I really wanted to do. I wanted to challenge myself, and uh, delighted to have that opportunity. You took over in, if my, if my research is correct, December two thousand and thirteen. The debut games against Oldham and Jonathan Douglas with the ninetieth minute winner. Just describe the emotions of all that. It was it was one because you take over and the fans lose Uve um, and in the previous season if you remember the un- unforgettable game where they hit the bar on a penalty uh, again you know and, and they went to the other end and scored and um, missed out and it was the, the the fine margins of football but Uve had done a tremendous job so I was an un- I was a sporting director an unknown player you know very much an unknown quantity in terms of managing. Uh, and that was a vital, a vital three points, a vital win. Um, and so, so pleasing to go off to a positive start. In terms of any game scoring in the 90th minute must be the best feeling. How does it feel as a manager? Are you tempted to run on the pitch like Jurgen Klopp famously did? No, you run on the pitch at the right time, Callum. If you win a Champions <laughs> League, that's, that's fine. But uh, no, this was a League One game. But it was one that, you know, obviously delighted to have David Weir join us as well. You know, an outstanding person. Obviously, his playing career is outstanding. But as a person, he's outstanding. And to have someone of his calibre join me. And soon after, Frank Lepardner as well. Some really good people around you. So it was a case of we, we, I knew I had good staff already in place. Um, they trusted me. I'm saying that in a, not in an arrogant way, but we worked together very closely. So it was pleasing for everyone to get that sort of start. But a late goal like that and the feel-good factor that it inspires. The stadium, you could hear be a sigh of relief because it was a poor game in general, but it's three points. And we went on a really good run. Um, and yeah, it was a good season all round. We got promotion with Wolves to the championship and it was a uh, it was a fantastic ride that for that 18 19 months you mentioned the promotion from league 1 i think a lot of people forget this but you went 19 games unbeaten just how much confidence did you have and did the players have in what you were achieving because you were absolutely flying yeah we had a really good really good team we had a really good environment it was all about the environment being created um and a lot of my work as sporting director has been to help Uwe in that creation. He's a very warm, affable person, speaking to everyone and that, and very competitive. Uh, and that was, you know, we, had, we had very similar thoughts in that respect of about how you speak to people, that environment that you create. 
So to have that and go on, um, the environment was good. We had a group of players who bought into the environment. They worked hard. The owner agreed about bringing a really aggressive in bonus incentive scheme. They're working men. And they, that, I said to you earlier about rewarding success. That, that um, mentality was in place. You mentioned Jonathan Douglas. He probably summed it all up. You know, there was a guy who played at Leeds and big games, an international player, but he gave his all every time he pulled the shirt on. Um, led by example, played 45 games out of 46 in the championship season. And I think I rested him for one. He was fuming at me for the one game <laughs> he didn't play. But, you know, his, his desire to do well, his individual competitive nature and how it rubbed off and the standards that he demanded of the other younger players, Vitally important. So we had a good run, 19 games. We got promotion with Wolves and we came up and um, I think we had one of the bottom three budgets, always one of the favourites to go down. But we knew we had a winning mentality. We knew we had good players. We made two or three very astute additions and we were a good squad. One of the things I want to talk to you about was something that you did that was outside the box. It's fair to say you took your players on a tour of HSBC Donaldson, Trotter, players that were flying. How did they react to, to, to that sort of environment? I, I've got a, um, I won't bore you with details here, Callum, but I am very conscious that I never had the professional playing career that someone like David Weir had, for example. So David would obviously be able to talk to the players from a, a playing perspective. But I players, not in a shallow way, players love holidays, they're competitive and they like money, you know, that type of, because they're, they're hardworking, competitive guys. So I could always use analogies related to the city. I would talk about my experiences, players, people, or traders that I'd worked with who were equally as competitive as these guys, but had a different skill set. So I wanted to show them what it was about. And my old trainee, actually, my old junior, is, was then flying. He was global head of trading, HSBC, and I took them in there. And um, Clayton Donaldson, for example, has a financial head on his shoulders. You know, and, and I think one of the first questions was, how much do you earn to this guy? <laughs> and I, if I remember rightly, I think Stewie said uh, 100 grand a year, which is a lot for the average man in the street. But Absolutely. In, you know, in football terms, they will go straight away, 100 grand a year, two grand a week. That's how footballer will think, straight two grand, he's on two grand a week. It's not a lot compared to what, you know. So that's straight away, their impression of this guy dipped. Then they realised when he asked about his bonus and his bonus was way in the seven figures, they realised, whoa, hang on a second. But this guy had dealt in huge sums of money, oversaw massive responsibility, wasn't a lot older in terms of some of the senior players, you know, and uh, they got a real eye-opener in how the, the volumes of business that we spoke about earlier flowing through, you know, in a world-class dealing room. So that was a really, we were playing Millwall on a Saturday. And it was a chance to take them in and show them a different environment. And I think they really enjoyed it. I think they got a real eye-opener. They understood what my stories and analogies referred to um, and, the, and the truth behind them, obviously. So, yeah, it was a really worthwhile trip. In terms of the, yourself, you talked about David Weir, Frank McParland as well. You're someone who, I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast and you're doing this, but I really admire you because of your philosophy in football. And I've always felt that you try and play football the right way. How does your relationship with Frank and Davey work on a day-to-day basis on the training field when you were together? David and I were able to coach him. Um, Frank was an outstanding recruitment. He's one of the best in the world at recruitment, undoubtedly. Um, so I knew David from... Um, I, we'd set a tournament up, the Next Gen Series tournament that Liverpool were in 
Frank had overseen Liverpool Academy and Liverpool were in the tournament, along with the likes of City, um, Tottenham, Chelsea, Barca, Dortmund, PSG, Anderlecht. All these European giants were in it. And David was at Everton. And I think David Moyes had tasked David Weir with getting Everton into the tournament. So I knew how David saw the game, obviously admired the way he conducted himself and the way he spoke so uh, so well, so knowledgeably. So I knew our, our thoughts aligned in that respect. And I knew all about Frank. I knew about the recruitment and how he he wanted to play the game and the types of player profiles. And again, we, we, we aligned on so many fronts in terms of that. So I knew I had a, an outstanding football person, David Weir. You know, good work. We, we would split the coaching, do everything together. I might do a warm-up one day. I'd do a passing and possession. He'd do finishing and the game and then we'd swap it round. And then I knew in Frank, he understood exactly what we wanted from a player. He knew the profiles of the full-back, the, the wing-back or the controlling midfielder or the centre-half. He knew exactly what we wanted. So he, he would go away, come back with the five examples. We'd sit down and pour. But what we did do, Callum, was if one of us disagreed on a player, we never signed them. You know, obviously in terms of Matthew, the owner, of course, yes. his input. But from our three, going to Matthew, if we disagreed, we didn't. We didn't. That was it. We trusted each other to the level that, you know, I know there's a reason why I said, now, if I was really adamant or David adamant on a player, we'd push it really hard. But the owner, likewise, was very knowledgeable, very supportive, and he'd give his opinion. He's, he, at the end of the day, he was spending the money. But um, I like the fact that we trusted, all of us trusted each other enough that if someone said no, that was it, we moved on. Something I'm interested to ask you, Mark, is you mentioned the fact that you started managing in League One. How did the championship compare to League One? Was it a, was it a really big step above, or was the gap not as big as you maybe thought? No, it was a big step. It was a big step in terms of the teams that would come down. You know, you, so you look at you look at this year, and you look at the likes of Stoke City and West Brom and you know, big clubs, and you look at the likes of Leeds and Forest and Derby and Sheffield Wednesday. They're big clubs. Then again, we went from playing in the League One to suddenly, you know, some big big clubs in that division. But again, um, Matthew always spoke about uh, people underestimating the teams that are promoted and overestimating the teams that are relegated. So if you think about it, you're, you're a team that gets relegated, Callum. You've got a heavy cloud hanging over the, the, the whole club. You've lost a lot of games. You've suffered the massive disappointment of being relegated and what that means. You've invariably taken pay cuts as staff and players. So there's a really heavy weight on a club. Now reverse that to the promoted team who comes up taking pay rises. The place is buoyant. And you've got a winning mentality. You know, we won a lot of games in League One with Wolves. We went up and we knew how to win games of football. Um, so we we surprised so many people. We went at them. We played football. We were brave. Um, but we went to great, you know, some tremendous stadiums, some League One, actually good clubs, historical clubs. But we went to some far bigger stadiums in the championship. You had to enjoy those days. But we made sure that the mindset was go there to win. We never went there to say try and get a point or come away with it. We went there to play the game our way. If we were going to lose games of football. We were favourites for relegation. So this is almost your, your, your free year. Um, and teams underestimated us. And by the time they realised we were a good team, we were second the table. <laughs> That's amazing. What I want to ask you about is Brentford in terms of facilities. Griffin Park, obviously a very old ground. They're hoping to move to a new ground. What were the facilities like in terms of training and things like that? No, they, again, the owner, we 
still now they train at Jersey Road and it's a uh, facilities of a, a private school that they rent. But that goes for many, you know, at Watford, they, they rented the ground off of UCL and we're at Imperial College in, in QPR now. So that's 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 pretty common around this this neck of the woods, Callum. So again, we he, the owner invested in the training facilities. We had a porter cabin. When I first got there, we had one small school, small, uh, how to describe it, just a sports, yeah, sports building, no more than that, tiny. And then we went down the porter cabin route. And we literally, by the time we left, we had like Port Cabin City of gyms and medical rooms and analysis rooms and classrooms. It's great, perfect. It worked for us. Um, and they invested money in the pitches. So we had three tremendous pitches, good quality. And we, we had everything we needed. It hasn't, obviously, it was never going to be Tottenham's training ground, Cobham at Chelsea or, you know, Carrington. It was never going to be of that, that calibre. But it's not about the facilities. It's about the quality of people within the buildings. It's about the environment, the levels of respect, how they treat people, how they work together, the, the work ethic of the people involved. So, you know, it's for, for me, we had really good people there. The environment was good. The atmosphere was good. Level of respect was good. The hunger and desire was there. And they were getting results, Callum. So it always helps to ram home a point and a belief when you're winning games of football. Something, again, I don't mean to put you in the spot by asking you this question, but see when you won promotion from League One, in hindsight, were you disappointed to continue on a rolling contract or did that suit you? No, not at all. Suits me. I, I, I don't understand. I see managers or players sign these long-term deals and six months later, they're moving on. And, you know, for me, if, if, you, if, if you're a player, for example, and you're committed to long-term contract, is there a, is there a danger that player loses hunger? For example, if he's not being, if, if the club changes manager and he's not being picked, he doesn't want to be there for three years. He wants to move on. So what I'm not sure. I understand why the long-term contracts in terms of securing a value, but 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 sorry, but but again, um, again, excuse me, uh, but again, you know that one year, if the club are happy with me, then we extended, and if I was comfortable, I wanted to extend. So I I, I like that arrangement. I like the idea that. Um, you know, people trust each other. There's good faith. There's a handshake, and it was all it was all very, very, um, all very comfortable. In terms of the championship, if we go back to that. You had a, a young team in your first victory in the championship was a two-one win over Blackpool. See, when you get your first win in the championship, does that make you feel confident that you've got the the, the means of a team that can go on and win games? Because as you said, teams, in your opinion, only really took you seriously when you got to second in the table, which was admirable in itself. No, if I remember rightly, it was Stuart Dallas, I think, scored that goal. If I remember rightly, at, at Blackpool, who's now obviously doing wonders at Leeds. So it just shows us a small world. Um, yeah, it did. To go there, uh, your first away trip, to go there and, and play well and win the game. Uh, again, that, the belief that builds on the return journey, as you can imagine, you're, you're travelling back. So that belief is fantastic. Um, but we, were, we, we then started to go to some places and we were, we were recording a lot of chances, Callum. And to this day, it's about the quality of chance that you create. And we were doing that. We were, we were securing chance or creating chances. We were hurting teams. And as I say, because Griffin Park is a small old stadium, it's tough for the opposition. The change rooms are tiny. Um, and it's a hard trip. If you go there with a slightly below par mindset, you, we could hurt teams. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that in an arrogant way about being second at the table. It was very much that we were winning games. And it was us and Bournemouth. I remember we went to Dean Court, as it was called then, 
we lost 1-0 to Bournemouth. They got a goal in the 57th minute, I think it was, or something. But we were tremendous second half and battered them. And I'm saying that very respectfully. A lot of those players went on to play in the Premier League for Bournemouth. And that game, although we lost that game 1-0, we took so much confidence in the way we played way at a tough venue against a, a club that went and got promotion to the Premier League. So small, ste- small steps on the way. But no, there's a lot of belief being built. And as you say, by, by Christmas, we were in a really good position. Um, we had a disappointing result, I think, it was against Ipswich, who were third. I think it was second league third at the time. But we, we finished the season really strongly. In terms of yourself, what something I'm interested to ask you about was the fact that it was announced that you were going to leave the club before the end of the season. I remember at the time finding that very strange because you were clearly doing a really good job at Brentford in, in football circles, whether that was the media or, or us as fans. It, it just was a very strange situation. How did that all come about? Because, as I say, I was absolutely gobsmacked when I heard it. Yeah, it was a, at the end of the day, I mean, Matthew's a, an outstanding owner, um, very data-driven, and, and, and there was a, a drive to recruit certain players that I didn't think was right at the time. Um, I'm not saying that in a, an arrogant manager-type way, but I just thought the dynamic of the dressing room was really good. The unity was very, very tight. Um, and Matthew is figures-led, and you know, from a probability perspective, it might have improved our... Uh, ability to to win the last remaining games, etc. So we disagreed, and um, Matthew, you know, he's very clear about what he wants, uh, and I think Matthew felt that I wasn't going to buy into his ideas in in the recruitment side, and he wanted to make the change. Um, so listen, I've, I've never ever criticised Matthew. I've never will we'll never say a bad word against him. He's the owner. He writes the checks. That's his prerogative. Um, was I right to do? Was I right to walk out? Yeah, I, I was absolutely right. I, I've got to stand by what you believe in. But um, I didn't leak it. That generally, that's what you fell out of. I didn't, I didn't leak it. So I wanted to make sure. I asked him, do you want me to continue at the end of the season? He said, yes, please. So we did. That was it. It's plain and simple. You were linked with many clubs as soon as that news came out. How did you feel the rest of the season went following the news coming out in the media? Because... I can imagine it's a strange situation to be in when people, everyone knows you're leaving a club, but you're still striving to get promoted. Uh, it was strange. It was very unusual. Um, the, again, so much credit to the playing squad to maintain focus. We actually played Watford um, and Andre Gray scored an outstanding goal. I remember David Button, long release, and I think he ran around Craig Cathcart and roofed it from 20 yards. And then... Uh, this is one of my defining moments for me in football. I'll always remember it, got a grave remembering that he then ran behind the goal, down the touchline and jumped on me in the dugout. I remember it for two reasons. One, he's a unit, so I need to collapse <laughs> under the point of him. Um, but two, the other players all came and jumped on top of us. And uh, that, would, that meant so much. It meant so much in terms of we were together as a team. You know, David Weir deserves enormous credit and the coaching, you know, the, the, the support staff. Um, but we were together and said to them what it meant to, to me and to the group of staff. And then we had the choice. We could give up on the season or we could go for it. And they were outstanding. You know, you're talking about players like David Button, who's now at Brighton, who's like James Tarkowski at Burnley, Mojo de Bayou, who went to the Premier League, you know, Stuart Dallas, Jake Bidwell. You're talking about players like Andre Gray, Hotto, who's now at Villa. You know, these type, Alex Pritchard, who's at Huddersfield, top, top players. It turned out to be, but we were young at the time. 
and uh, they showed great desire. And uh, you know, the last game of the season, they had to win. I think it was by two or three goals, and they achieved it and become fifth in the championship. Which for our first season, all credit to them. In terms of the playoffs, how how are the playoffs to be involved in as a manager? Because it's it's a favourite of mine as a, as, a, as a football fan. I think the, the drama is incredible, but. I imagine is it from the managerial side, it's it's tough because there's so much riding on it. It is tough, Jan, you're right. And it was uh, something that you, you say you enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy what happened because I knew that the moment we lost, I was leaving Brentford, a club that I was very, obviously very close to and the fans have been outstanding and such a warm club in, and, and, and with a lot of success there, which is, we were very privileged. Um, but I found we played Middlesbrough at home, first of all, and we could see the late goal to go 2-1 down. Andre again scored and the atmosphere, there's a there's a level of, um, I, can't, I can't describe it, there's a ele- electricity around the ground, there's a real crackle around the ground because it's, it is the playoffs and what's the state, you're a game, you know, two games away from Wembley when you've played that first whistle, first goes and, and it means so much and suddenly the 150 million we spoke about earlier, that type of incentive is within touching distance, you can almost taste it now so it gives a different level to any game. And um, I just felt that all season we've played without any fear. And suddenly someone's woken up and gone, oh, my word. Hang on a second. We're, we're close. It's one of those. And I just felt we didn't do ourselves justice. Um, we had a couple of injuries, but we didn't do ourselves justice. Keeper pulled off a worldy save from a Jonathan Douglas header to put, would have put us 2-1 up. And, and it was just a fine margins. But I just felt disappointed because we were such a good team. And the boys deserve so much credit, and they didn't really give it get what they deserved in that final game up at uh, up at Middlesbrough. Following your departure from Brentford, you were a wanted man. You were linked with so many jobs. What was your thoughts at that time in terms of the next step for you? Obviously, you ultimately go to Rangers, who are an absolute juggernaut of a of a club here in Scotland, and, and the club my dad supported very passionately. Actually, um, what what was it like in terms of from from your perspective, trying to work out where to go next? It's a great question. Um, bearing in mind, I've come into the game later. Bearing in mind, I've got a different background. So I had to try and choose wisely. Um, I was very, very lucky because of what happened at Brentford to have a lot of choices. Uh, some big clubs, some really big clubs. Um, but David Weir um, spoke to me so passionately always about Rangers. Obviously, captain the UEFA Cup final in Manchester yeah. and his background and Walter Smith and the great players. But he always had spoken so passionately and we were asked to speak t- to them. Um, and, and at the time, I won't say who, but we had you know four or five big, big championship clubs asking, offering the jobs and the contracts. Um, but we met, with, uh, we met with a couple of Rangers representatives at a really good meeting in London. Um, and a follow-up meeting, and David was just, you could just see, this is guys going, and then it was my son. My son played football in academy right the way through, young professional, and uh, I came home, and I was unsure what to do, and I had a job offer in London as well, so my wife's thinking about working, staying at home, um, and my son played me uh, a clip off of YouTube of Rangers versus Celtic, an old firm at Ibrox, uh, Penny Arcade, and he, I think it's about eight minutes long, Callum. And he played me this thing with the music on speakers with the music blaring out. And he just said, how do you turn down this? And he was right. 
And I don't want to sit here and sound like a romantic or anything else, but it was just, I love football. I love the passion that football inspires. Uh, and it, to watch an old firm pre-match of that level, and you think you've got an opportunity here to be part of this, um, that for me was a deciding factor and, and a, an absolute privilege, as you say, juggernaut of a club. I think both Rangers and Celtic, I'm saying this full of respect, it, it, they're, they're two football institutions in the global game. So to have an opportunity to go and manage one of them, as in Glasgow Rangers, what a privilege. What a privilege. And if I'd said no to that, I'd always look back and go, what if? In terms of Rangers, you mentioned the fact that, David, we are so passionate. Your son playing you the, the clip on YouTube and you think, wow. Be honest, Mark. See, when you go to Rangers, even though you knew they were a massive club worldwide, were you just, could, could you believe the size of it when you actually get into the building firsthand? Yeah, I, I get really angered, not by you. I get really angered when I read so many times he did. He never got the size of Rangers. He didn't understand the size of the task. I'm not stupid. I'm not saying I'm a rocket scientist. I'm no Einstein, but I'm not stupid. And I'd been in some very big and responsible jobs and turned over billions of dollars a day and knew about responsibility and awareness. I knew the size of the club. I knew I'd done my homework. I was very, very aware of the size of the club. Um, and I always, sometimes I wanted to turn back and say, hang on, you've got to be, there are expectations here. You're not in the top flight here. You've, you've suffered the, what happened, happened. And the relegations that you suffered and endured and you're on the way back. We were tasked, non-negotiable was a term, to get promotion. So I knew what we had to do, the size of the club. I knew what it meant to the city. I was very, very aware of that. And it really, really irritated me, Callum, for people to think that I was that stupid and naive. So um, give me some credit in that respect. I was uh, aware of what was involved and the passion, the emotion to get back to the top flight. You, you mentioned that passion to get back to the top flight and that knowledge that, as you say, non-negotiable was, was the situation. In terms of Ibrox, what do you remember from your first game managing there? Because it is a real cauldron of football. It is a cauldron of football. And... Um, my dad sadly had passed away. He was a football fanatic, uh, Newcastle fan, born in Gateshead, bled black and white. But he always spoke and, and you, know, you knew about the great... When I was a kid growing up, the European nights, teams like Red Star, Belgrade, but you listen on the radio and Glasgow Rangers were up there as, as one of the European giants. And um, so to, to be able to... As I said, I'm using the term privilege because it is. Anyone says otherwise is, is delusional. It's a privilege to manage that level of club and when you look at the stadium and the history and you walk in the reception with the marble staircase and the, the wood, the dark wood and the Queen Mary history and, and the players and people that have been there, if you're not, if you're not uh, impacted by that, you shouldn't be in the game. So that was a real privilege. You could feel the weight of expectation flooding down from the terraces. Absolutely. But the fan base was superb to me. And um, as I say, you're always going to get at every club in the world, you're going to get two or three percent of idiots keyboard warriors dishing out abuse in general the fans were outstanding absolutely outstanding the next question i've got for you mark is a personal question you might not want to answer it and that's fine glasgow is a goldfish bowl of football did you live in glasgow when you managed strangers or did you choose to live in edinburgh because i know from from past experience of speaking to people who've managed celtic and and, and played for both Celtic and Rangers, they've said that it's a big decision you have to make because 
it's just a city that's unlike many others when it comes to football because of the nature of the divide. Well, I never asked anyone that advice, if I'm honest with you. Uh, you're talking to a man who managed in London, and on the M25, you probably spend an hour and a half travelling 15 miles sometimes. So I, I just found, uh, where would you go? David Weir said West End. Um, so I lived just off of Byers Road. Uh, absolutely loved every minute of it, Callum. I found the people to be so polite. I'm saying polite, Glasgow sense of humour and banter and everything else you, you know about better than I do. But I just found the people to be warm, genuine. When we won, they were so supportive. When we lost, you could see that they were, but it meant so much to them. And they'd pull you and, how did we lose that? And why did you play him? Didn't, never minded that. But the people were never anything other than really approachable, um, never had an issue. In all my time at Glasgow, uh, I keep asking questions about you know the religious aspects. Never, never was I troubled, you know, in any way or intruded in any way. I just found the people to be funny, warm, genuine, uh, and it was a joy to live there for the two years. I was just off a of buyer's road. I was 10, 15 minutes to the training ground. I was 10 minutes to Ibox, and I was 15 minutes to the airport. Couldn't be better. In terms of Glasgow, you mentioned the fact you really enjoyed it. Did it take you a wee while to settle because you'd been based in London for so long? Uh, yeah, it's different. It's a different city. Um, don't forget, I've got I've gone from living at home with my wife and children. Obviously, we're growing up, um, you know. But um, it's, it's difficult. You move, and and because of the the uh, size of job at Glasgow, you you were twenty four seven. So there's, there's no point my wife coming up to be in an empty flat while I'm out doing what we had to do, whether it was a an evening, a fans forum or a presentation or whatever. It was full on. So you have to commit to a job of that nature. So my wife and family would come up for, for the games and land on a Friday night. We'd have a quiet dinner. We'd have the game on a Saturday, have a quiet dinner. They'd go home on a Sunday morning. And, and that was it. And I, I had every intention of getting home every two or three weeks never really happened because the, the job was just too busy. So, um, you know, in that respect, no, I, I loved every minute of that side of it. And you, you have to commit to this type of job, Callum, otherwise you, you, you're doomed to fail. In terms of the, the, the season in the championship, you, you won the championship, played some great stuff along the way. Martin Wycorn was scoring plenty of goals. He's obviously on to do really well and, and back down south now with Derby County. In terms of that season in the championship, first of all, how did how was it managing at that level? I'm from Inverclyde, so my hometown club's Greenock Morton, one of the clubs you you faced a few times. Um, what's it like managing at that level? Because for Rangers, being in the championship was was very strange. I mean, coming to Capelo, watching Rangers play in the same division and not the top flight was was utterly bizarre for me. Yeah, well, you've got you would have that real knowledge of the Scottish game in terms of where Rangers should be. But no one has a divine right to be anywhere. Um, you know, yeah. you see it in the championship down here now. It said Brentford coming up. People say they're too small, they're a tiny club. But no one's got divine right. Um, so what happened had happened. We came into that championship season. Um, and obviously the, the, the following, you know, uh, quite incredible. The, 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 the Rangers faithful home and away was, in, was an amazing sight to see. Um, so I, I'm always very aware as a manager, Callum, that you've got to, Supporters have got to be entertained. You know, they, they want to enjoy watching their team play. I understand it's about results, but in the results industry, absolutely. But they, it's like anything, you want to enjoy what, you, what you're doing and where you spend your money. So we wanted to play a certain way. Um, and that, I remember at championship season, every game was a cup final. You know, whenever you went to 
whatever team in the championship, Rangers came to town. And it was just heaving and, and teams played. You'd watch, you'd analyse them in the previous. So Morton, analysed, you know, manager I had a lot of respect for. And I watched the team play, right? And then they played us, they were completely different. You know, players <laughs> were playing, they were running harder, the data was different, and everything was very, very. You had to adapt to it. You had to realise Rangers had come to town and this is what this, the opponent is going to rise to the occasion. So every single away game you had that. Then every single home game, the expectation, if you won by only one, only one or the papers would chastise you, you know, because teams would put 10 men behind the ball. Quite rightly, we had, we had better players uh, playing at Ibrox, 10 men behind the ball. And anyone will tell you that could be hard to break down. So sometimes we had to be really patient and it might be, a, you know, you've scored in the early in the game. We've had Dundee in a cup game. Dundee were in the Premier League and we were in the championship. We scored early. They had to open up and we beat them 4-0 when it could have been eight. Because teams, you know, if they had to open up and go after you, then we could hurt them. But if they stuck in, they were hard to break down. They could always nick a set piece. Um, so you had to face that expectation at home and that away situation for every time you travelled away from Ibrox. So I found the whole season, great education, great experience, understanding more and more about Rangers and, and the faithful and et cetera. So a really, really pleasing season. But we got the job done in terms of it was non-negotiable, Cullen. So when you have that type of target, you know, I think it was 11 or 13 points we were clear at the end. Yeah. We, the Petrofax, someone asked me recently, I was a nothing cup. Well, we're in the competition and we're Rangers. So therefore, we go to win it. So we, we won it, and on the day, Hamden was 95% blue. And they, the fans had a great day out, great support for the team. We won convincingly, good performance, great, you know, spectacular goal from James Tavernier, and, and the fans went home happy with silverware. And that was important, to start winning again. And then we beat Celtic in the semi-final of the Cup in a, you know, a, a game which will live long in a memory for me, and I'll still get many Rangers fans calling out about that day and the, the shootout and Barry Mackay's goal. And But that, again, was a great day. And I was so pleased with that because it gave the Rangers fans that day out. I know the Celtic fans will say what's happened since, right? But that particular day was uh, was special. I want to talk about that day, Fernando, enough. that was the next thing I wanted to come on to. Going into the game, chance to, to play Celtic, uh, an old firm derby in the cup semi-final. What were your feelings going into that? Were you nervous at all? And I mean that in the I mean that with the most respect because as you said, you were Rangers were in the championship at the time and Celtic were in the top flight and had a and had a bigger budget. So how did you approach the game? They um great point. Uh I've got to be honest, I've gone in the press before Callum and said I was appalled at the treatment Ronnie Dyler was getting. I knew Ronnie and uh, a very respectful man and, you know, polite man and football through and through. And I thought some of the press was almost a point of litigation. It was that bad, the amount of abuse he was getting. So it was top of the league and they were still getting torrents of abuse, as you know. So I thought that was that for us. I was appalled at that, but it gave us the opportunity. I knew the pressure on them would be enormous. So, of course, the pressure on us to go there and perform. We were top of the championship. They were top of the Premier League. But the golfing budget was significant. I mean, multiple. That day, I, my three midfielders wouldn't come close to what one of their midfielders were winning for Celtic. Not, nowhere near it. And, and guys on very minimal wages that day did an unbelievable job. The likes of Don Ball 
Andy Halliday, etc., Jason Holt. So I knew we had that. And nine times out of ten, with the budget difference, and there were international players, the Rogers of this world, and Brown, and Armstrong, and etc., etc. Nine times out of ten, we'd lose that game. But if you remember when Patrick Roberts missed that chance from five yards out, you go, hang on a second. You never, this could be the one time out of 10 where was, Kenny scored a great goal. We were playing really good football. We deserve to be in front. They got the equaliser, um, but we were playing really well. You know, Don Balls would be now at QPR, was outstanding. Rob Keane, Danny Wilson, Tav, etc. Lee Wallace, you know, Wesing goal. Uh, throughout the team, we looked so comfortable in possession. I was so pleased for the players and the fans that we were playing that way. And uh, and what happened happened, but I knew the pressure on Ronnie was enormous and and so unjust on him, but we had to use it to our advantage, Callum. In terms of that, you mentioned Patrick Roberts's miss, the fact the pressure on Ronnie Dyler. Something that I remember from watching the game was, and again, I don't mean this to be patronising. Please don't take it this way. The standard of football you played that day, considering Celtic were a division above, I thought was outstanding to, to watch. I thought. The confidence on the ball to build from the back, despite the fact you were playing a team who were, as you say, top of the uh, top in the top flight, I thought was was admirable in terms of yourself and your philosophy. Even though it was it was a cup semi final, it was against Celtic. Were you confident that your players could go out and express themselves as they had been doing in the championship? Yeah, and in in the days leading up to it, obviously it was such a big game as you can imagine, and the media just you know just ramped up day on day in, into the game. So you look at how your players will react. And uh, Don Ball, I'm using him because at the time, you know, young 20-year-old and other young players in the squad, the likes of Kenny Miller and Lee Wallace have been there and done it. So they had the, the vast experience and the knowledge of such games, and that was vital to us. Then I looked at the likes of Dom and, and James Tavernier and these types, and it was genuine excitement. It wasn't fear. It wasn't worry or nerves. It was just gently could not wait. They're going to go and play an old firm game. You know, one of the greatest derbies in world football. And you've got these guys who love the game. You know, and I'm, I'm saying about wages because some of these guys were on very, very low wages. I mean, compared to the English Championship, for example, you know, very low wages. And they've gone into this game and there was no fear. They just wanted to play. Barry Mackay, outstanding you know, but played, danced, gliding across the pitch. And I, I knew going into the days, and I spoke to David Weir, who'd been in so many of those big games for Rangers, and he got the same feeling, that the players were just hungry to play. So, yeah, before the game, it was an excitement. You look at them in the tunnel, and they're just ready. They were just so ready. So I knew they would play. Young players only learn by making mistakes. I didn't want any of them to suffer by making a mistake on that particular day. Um, and I was just so pleased for them that they performed to that level in, on such an occasion in front of the Rangers fans. When you win the penalty shootout, describe your emotions because it was the biggest result Rangers had had since what happened had happened. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm going to sound holier than now. I don't mean to by that. So I just knew what it meant to the blue side of Glasgow. I knew what the fans had been through. Um, I've got a lot of, I'd have made a lot of friends. While up there, you know, a lot of golfing friends and generally good people, Saty Sings Restaurant and all these various places, but generally, generally good people who have remained close friends. Now, I spoke to a couple of them actually yesterday, 
Um, but I knew what it meant to them. They were all there. My family were there. And you saw the noise. And I, I, I'm going to sound like an old romantic now, but on when Rogic was stepping up to take the kick, you hear the Rangers fans sing. And I turn, you won't see it on the footage. I turn to Davey and it's like, he's going to, he, this is our moment. The fans just knew it. Uh, and he put it over the bar. And at that moment, the relief, because you knew what it meant. Uh, and I'm not going to I'm not going to apologise for the the passionate passionate side of it because as I say as a football person if as a fan player manager coach medic if you can't enjoy those moments you shouldn't be in football that was um, excuse me that was that will live long long in a memory and again I keep using that word privilege but to be on the touchline to to see the joy of the players to get the medals to watch what it meant for them was absolutely outstanding. I will never, ever forget that. In terms of that, you mentioned the fact that it's a day you'll never forget. And going into the final against Hibs, I recently interviewed Alan Stubbs. And obviously for him, it's his greatest achievement in management. For you, your emotions will be completely different. It was a, it was a mental final and a mental occasion. How do you look back on it? Obviously, you're going to say disappointment, but in terms of that day itself, just how do you reflect on it now with a power of hindsight? Uh, I reflect back on it. I've got to be very careful what I say here. We lost the game of football. Alan and team Hibbs won the, won the game with two very late goals. But I, the, the feeling I had going to the semi-final in terms of the no fear and the hunger and the excitement, we were running on empty. Don Ball got suspended, if you remember. Yes. Um, and I, and I, named, I only named five subs. Not through trying to make a point, I had no players left. I had no players left. The likes of Tom Walsh had gone out and loan. I was not allowed to name those guys. Jordan Thompson is is now playing at Stoke. I was they gone out. And I was unable to name them in the squad, so we had no one. We were running on empty. Um, that three week break killed us. We were. I could never understand that break. I had to bring the boys down to play Tottenham under 23. I'm, I'm pointing here because I'm Tottenham training ground is very close to me. Um, but we had to come down and find a game. Teams had finished, etc. So we couldn't find a game. And I just found the whole thing so difficult because the players were just exhausted. Um, not just physically, but mentally, they had achieved, they'd won the league. They'd beaten Celtic, which is this, as you just said, a massive game after what they'd been through as a club and I just felt we went into that game and looked so tired and Andy Adelaide scores and I think we're going to do enough but I just knew we were empty um, can't excuse defending from set piece you know we should have defended their goal better absolutely but a different impression going into the game I didn't enjoy the build up to the cup final it's the Scottish cup final how can you not enjoy the build up but I just felt a completely different sensation to that that I'd, I'd experienced going into the semi-final in terms of the season, we talked about the fact you, you won the league, non-negotiable, you got it done, you won the Challenge Cup. Again, you mentioned that if Rangers are in it, you should be winning it, you won it. How did you reflect back in that first season, considering that you'd got to the Scottish Cup final? And how did the, the sort of hierarchy um, reflect in the season? What Were they happy with the fact you'd won the league? Or was there a change in perspective because you'd got to the final? No, I think uh, the target was achieved and comfortably. I think I was at 11 or 30, I don't know what it was. It was, a, it was a good margin. So we'd achieved the target, the obvious one, and Rangers back in the top flight. 
we'd beaten Celtic, which gave so much joy to the board as well. I mean, the board are passionate fans, so they got the same joy as all the Rangers faithful. Um, we won the Petrov back, which is another bit of silverware, and it was a day out for the Rangers fans. So I think the first year's school report was very, very positive, you know, really positive. We'd lost the, the cup final, which hurts, still hurts, um, but you have, to, you have to take it. Hibs won the game at the end of the day. Um, you have to take it. But I got very frustrated in some of these keyboard warriors you refer to. The amount You suddenly got a bit of abuse about losing the cup final. Didn't know what it means. Rangers don't lose cup finals. Hang on. That's the first time you've beaten Celtic for however long. And, you know, it was we got there. And did we want to lose a game? Of course not. We were devastated to lose a game. But it was still a good achievement by a team in the championship to get to there. And yes, we should have beaten Hibs. If you look at the two teams on paper, but all credit to Hibs. They, they did what they had to do on the day. So I think the first year was very, very good. Um, it just changed, though, the expectation of the second year. You know, we were going back up. That gulf in wages, the budgets of the two playing squads, was still vast, absolutely vast. And uh, we were still getting free transfers. People say, I read some, some nonsense, Callum, about Nico Cranchell on 25 grand a week. Absolute nonsense. You know, divide by multiples. Uh, on these players. I don't want to give away confidential information, but I read yeah. absolute tosh. And it was just a case of the expectation there. Uh, and if we'd have managed that better, then we would have been fine. I knew we were fine and what happened happened. But uh, as I say, for me, it was just managing expectation. And that was where the history of Rangers was tough because the faithful expected, a bit like Nottingham Forest, Nottingham Forest won two European championships. What an unbelievable achievement in you know, 78, 79, etc. Unbelievable achievement. But they hadn't been in the top flight for many, many years. But many of the faithful have been brought up on that level of success. Um, and as I say, us going back up there, I didn't want to be a negative, but I knew if we could consolidate, come second, get European football back to Ibrox, and then keep building the squad, year three for me was when we should have gone for Celtic. That was always a way. But if I said that in the press, you get chastised for lack mm. of ambition. There's no lack of ambition. I just had a realistic head on. And um, that was one of the biggest disappointments. And that message was never conveyed because the press can manipulate as much as they want to manipulate up there. In terms of coming up, you mentioned the fact you had to shop in the sort of free agency market. Um, Nico Kranjar came in, obviously, international with Croatia, done so much in the Premier League. Joey Barton came in as well, another big name who just won the Championship Player of the Year in England. W was shopping in that market the best you could do? And, and in terms of Joey and Nico, were they guys you were desperate to bring in just to just to help the more inexperienced, younger players around them? Yeah, it was because, and again, maybe if I look back in hindsight, and David Weir would probably give you his perspective as well, um, it was that dealing with that expectation. Had we been able to go in there and keep it young, you know, we had young Gedeon Zalalam on loan, for example. Um, excuse me, sorry. We had young Gedeon Zalalam on loan. Um, went young with the youth market. Had we carried on that youthful approach, um, I think the, the danger was on the board that, or the, the feeling was that Celtic had such a, an experience in crop of internationals that the, the gulf would be too wide. Um, so I, th I wanted to make sure Clint Hill, for example, you know, yeah, Clint, yeah. what an outstanding professional Clint is, a gentleman, um, outstanding defender, but free transfer and a low wage. They had the chance to play for a club like Rangers and we got the services and, you know, 
I'm talking about, I'm not going to give away information, but again, fractions of what his direct opponent at the other side of the city would be on. So, you know, we had to go and shop in it. There was no great sums. You saw it and some of the stories in the press, the, the certain reporters drummed up, just hurt because fans thought guys were on 15, 20, 30 grand a week. Absolutely nowhere near it. But it was just a case of we had to still be very tight on the fiscal side. Um, all the problems you're still seeing now, the loss last year. And, you know, so the, it, it was del treading a delicate balance, column to make sure we got there. But it has always been aware that, that Celtic had this crop of players, internationals and in every position, and the gulf was still there. And I just wanted to make sure we kept building, always looking at year three as being when we would try and really force a challenge. Two things I want to ask you about. Um, when you go out for that first game against Hamilton and there's the, the banner going for 55, how did that make you feel? Because as you've just said, you had a realistic head on. Was that one of the moments you thought, oh no, this, the expectation here is going to, could kill us this season because fans are expecting that, an immediate challenge? Yeah, and uh, I've, been, I've said it in the press before, so it's nothing that I haven't said before, or stated before. Um, I, first game back in the Premier League, Great experience, packed high box and, and Rangers back where they actually do belong in the top flight. Um, and I I'm, I'm, can't wait to see them at the top of the top flight. But that I walked in that morning and I saw on the seats going for 55. And that tells, or that just for me, just lit the blue touch paper. And I wanted to say that, can we consolidate? Can we give a you know, good account of ourselves? Can we get second place? Ideally, if we get any more than that, great. Can we have a good run in the cups, uh, etc.? All this type of rhetoric. If you get it right, um, well, I was probably naive to Glasgow. Was that was reported as yeah, he doesn't get Rangers. They don't do second. Rangers don't do second. Hang on, you've been down to this division and worked your way back. So we're still building to get back to where you were. This is not the, the Rangers of David Weir and, and the UEFA Cup final. This is a completely different club. Um, and that was a, the, one of the, the sad memories for me was that that message, I couldn't get it across. Report, certain reporters did want to report it anyway. They'd report it as a lack of ambition, lack of desire. Absolutely not. Didn't get, doesn't understand what Rangers are about. I get what the club are about. Absolutely. And the expectation, of course, it's a huge institution. But we've just come up from the championship. So again, you know, if you pick a club, Brentford come up and they're expecting them to be, you know, winning win the league and beating Leeds, West Brom and Fulham. It wasn't going to happen that first year. It coincided with Brendan coming in and having the, the record year in Celtics history. That was it. And if you think back to some of the press conferences, Callum, where I spoke about regressing to the norm and you get a striker that scores eight goals, nine goals, eight goals, 10 goals, 25 goals, eight goals, nine goals, 10 goals. This happens in all, in all walks of life. You have this stellar year. That was Celtic's stellar year. Brendan will tell you the same. And it wasn't repeated. And all I said was, how many would you normally lose? Normally lose four or five games. Normally one to Rangers. If you do that and take into account, we'd be four or five points behind them. Not the 20 points that we were. And I, I, it wasn't to talk nonsense or bamboozle. It was just, I, I still absolutely tell you now, it's common sense. They had this outstanding year. And I think everyone panicked that we were too far behind Celtic but they were having that unbeaten run that was quite magnificent in terms of Brendan and what he achieved, but it, it hurt us enormously. 
the question I'm going to ask you now, I hope you don't take the wrong way. See, when Celtic hired Brendan Rodgers, was there a feeling from you of shit they mean business because of what he'd achieved in the game and the fact that he'd left Liverpool? Because no disrespect to Ronnie Dyla, he'd obviously came from Norwegian football, a really good coach, but he didn't have the pedigree of Brendan Rodgers, who was regarded as one of the, the most forward-thinking coaches in British football. Absolutely, and Celtic had a statement of intent in terms of their recruitment of a manager. You know, he came, he ran Brendan to Liverpool so close to the Premier League title. Um, so, you know, a magnificent achievement, a club of Liverpool stature. His background, you know, his, his connections with, with the, the, the Celtic club. Um, so uh, there's no doubt. They, I think they, they saw us and Peter Lowell uh, and the board would have looked across uh, Rangers winning the championship and momentum and 43,500 season tickets being sold and going, whoa, we've got to move here. Because if they hadn't, and we, you know, again, Joey Barton, all the the, uh, the hindsight press written, the disaster of a sign. When Joey signed, we got, the, the, every paper reported the, the, the deal of the summer, you know, the excitement, the season tickets that were sold on the back of it. As you said, championship player of the year, good pedigree. What happened, happened. But everything up to that point, the, there's no one can doubt the excitement that was caused by signing Joey Barton. So I think Celtic were very aware we were making a we were making good good headway, Callum. We were making progress. We were moving in the right direction as a club. And I think Celtic moved quickly to get someone really experienced and give him funds to go and get the Roberts and the Sinclairs alongside the Armstrongs and the the Browns and the Rogaches, etc. Um, the Tierneys, uh, the Brown, etc. They, they had really really talented team and they had to back Brendan because we were moving forward. Uh, what I want to ask you about, and again, understand the, the question and understand for, for many reasons you might not be able to answer fully, and that's OK. Was Joey Barton difficult to manage? Yes. And uh, listen, I've got a lot of respect for Joey, what he's doing now as a manager. Joey had very forthright views, and I had a very clear way how the respect, the environment I spoke to you about earlier, that we wanted to be in place, and people like Waggy, Kenny, Lee Wallace, Wes Fodringham, Tav, all of these guys, top, top guys, who um, we had a really good, really good atmosphere around us. And, and Joey had a different view. And um, as I say, what happened, happened. But I had to maintain my integrity within the group and did the right thing at the time. And, and people said, oh, why are they not coming out? The press knew there was legal matters. They knew that. They knew you can't speak. But still, silence from my box. Nothing from my box read the headlines, and it was just press being press. But they knew the good reporters knew that there was a legal matter going on, uh, and when that was settled, we all moved forward. Do you think that Joey was shocked by Scottish football in the sense that having won the Championship Player of the Year and and, and had such a great season that coming up to Scottish football was a different ball game in the sense that? For instance, you mentioned the fact when Rangers were in the Championship, it was everyone's cup final. I know for sure when Joey Barton came up here, for guys who were playing against them, that was their cup final. Yeah, and I think, you know, listen, he's, Joey's been an outstanding player. You know, he's, he's very knowledgeable about football. He's doing an excellent job at Fleetwood as a manager. Um, but you saw, I think many things would have shocked him. Uh, he may possibly have underestimated one or two aspects of the game in Scotland. And you can't do that. As I said to you earlier about Brentford coming up or even now in a championship in England, if you underestimate someone, if you don't prepare fully, 
uh, for a game, you get hurt. And I think maybe maybe that shot Joey in a couple of situations, a couple of aspects. There's no doubt about his quality as a player, his CV. Yeah. Um, but as I say, it didn't work out. It didn't work out for a number of reasons. And it's a great shame. Um, but what happened, happened. But I had to maintain integrity within the group of players. And my relationship with the likes of Lee and Kenny and Nico and Clint, etc., tells you that I think the right thing was done. In terms of yourself, Mark, you, you, you got the club up in the top flight. You had a, a brand of football that you've always played. You played that brand. You had some really good results as well along the way. Ultimately, you mentioned the fact because Celtic had what you described as a stellar season. Everyone else, not just Rangers, were dwarfed by that. And that's something that, that, that is just, as you say, absolutely exceptional. A record season, unbeaten. For yourself, when you left the club, there was lots of rumours resigning, didn't resign. Understand again, you need to watch what you say. When you left the club, was it your decision to leave or was it something that you were gutted about because you felt you still had, had work to do there, considering you mentioned year three was the year you wanted to, to try and go for Celtic? So I've, I've, uh, I answered a paper recently and said that I know that in every meeting I have with the board, I acted with honesty and integrity. Uh, I'm not saying that in an arrogant way, Callum. I'm saying that in, in total seriousness. Um, I've said before, and I say again, no one in their right mind would walk away from a club like Glasgow Rangers. No one in their right mind would not recognise the privilege of managing a club of that stature um, and what comes with it. And no one, I would never understand how anyone would resign and walk away from Glasgow Rangers. I said before I would walk back to Glasgow because it's a privilege to be associated with an institution in the world football. Take from that what you will. And uh, then I get I get asked about why didn't you contest this? If people think about it, borders and different cases and courts and mitigating packages, all these type of things, if they use their common sense, they can pick the bones out what they want to pick out of. But I will tell you now, it was an absolute privilege to manage that club and would never walk away from it. Great answer. Thank you for your honesty. This is a question that I'll be honest with you. I've spoken to, to, to people that support Rangers. It's something I believe passionately about as well, to be honest with you. See, the, the, I'm not asking you to trash other managers. That's not what I'm asking you to do. But the next manager who came into Rangers got an awful lot of money to spend on players that, in my opinion, you didn't get. Uh, is that something you look back on and and are slightly annoyed about in the sense that if you had been given a few million pounds to spend on a couple of players that you could have made a bigger impact? Yeah, um, I will never, ever disrespect another manager, ever. Yeah, of course not. Um, every manager will get as much as he possibly can get Callum to spend, so good luck to, to Pedro and whoever comes in and Stephen now, whoever. They need to get as much support as they possibly can get, so, you know, never, ever criticise that. Yes, in answer to your question, is we're we're working with free transfers and and very low wages and look at look at you know Taverniers and the Waghorns and the Foddinghams and the Keenans and Danny Wilson's free transfers, low wages. Um, so I get very frustrated. I do get frustrated when I see that. I think any manager's right mind would be equally as um, amused by it. We were very very tight on on players. Um, I think there was an interest in overseas players, and sometimes you have to see how form players can adapt to the demands of Ibox. Um, but from my point of view, no, that was, I looked on there, um, shocked and saddened by what happened. I was lucky that my 
going into Glasgow, as you mentioned earlier, I had a lot of interest uh, of, of interested parties, very fortunate. And when I left Glasgow, I was very fortunate that my CB was strong. We had got promotion, we got to the cup final, we won the Petrofac Cup, etc. So my CV was strong. Playoffs with Brentford, promotion with Brentford. I was very lucky to have that strong document. Um, and I had I had interest uh, four days after um, having to leave Rangers. I had uh, strong interest. And then two weeks later, Nottingham Forest came in. Before we talk about your time at Forest, I just want to ask you one last question about Rangers. You talked about the fact it's an immense privilege. In the background, people will be able to see you've got a book on Rangers there. <laughs> and you've got um, a framed Rangers jersey. So clearly the club meant a lot to you. It still means a lot to you. And how do you reflect overall on your time at Rangers? Well, let me just balance it out. This is my study. This is my private room where I go and, and hide myself away when I want to, when I've had enough of the missus or the family. So <laughs> I have got a forest shirt above my head. I've got a shirt of our West London neighbours, Brentford. I've got a very quiet QPR manager over there. And uh, I've got a few bits and pieces of Loch Lomond Golf Club here, which you can see, which is another very privileged place to, to go and play some golf. So uh, this is my room. So I don't think it's all Rangers, but um, I don't see how you can't be um, impacted by a club like Glasgow Rangers. You know, the, the passion, you get wrapped up in it straight away. It's a fantastic club. And uh, of course, it's going to be the green side of Glasgow and the blue side. But they are two football institutions that deserve so much respect. So for me, I look back at it and I'm using, I keep using the same words because you have to say it. As a manager, I committed wholeheartedly to it. I think my CV reads very, very strongly. Um, did the job there. We were second when we were when we had to leave. I mean, I've been very carefully. I choose my words there, Callum. But we were second in we were second in the league. We were 21 points behind Celtic, which I think caused all the panic. Um, but. It was a stellar year, and as I say, we weren't panicking, we were building. And uh, I look back on it as a time of, of privilege, of great enjoyment, meeting real characters. Um, but also, I, it has to be tinged with frustration of what happened. On to Nottingham Forest, uh, a club with great tradition, European pedigree, as you mentioned earlier, always known as sort of Brian Clough's Nottingham Forest in many yeah. ways. When you go into Nottingham Forest, as you mentioned, the, the, the club are in a, in a situation where they hadn't been in the Premier League for many years. They're still not back there. So it's not as if you didn't get them there and the next manager has. Um, how do you reflect on your time at Nottingham Forest? Because it was an interesting challenge. And for every manager that's been in there, including Martin O'Neill, another former old firm manager, it's been a challenge that so many managers have wanted to take on, but ultimately have found it frustrating for whatever reason. Um. Again, you always sound like you talk with a poor tongue. Um, we went in there and the the new owner came in, never dealt with the old owner, dealt, only met the new owner once, Mr. Maranakis, which was at the interview process. And we were tasked with getting the average age of the squad down. I think it was up at 29. Getting the numbers down. I walked into 36 players, I think, when I walked in there. Um, and to get mid-table security with a view to building. And... We were, we'd lost two home games at Christmas. We were 12th in the table. The average age was 23. In fact, it had been 22 years and 10 months for the previous two games. And the squad size was 24. And we got sacked after nine months. So there's the life of a football manager. And again, don't criticise the owner. He writes the checks. It's his, it's his baby. 
Um, but when you talk about KPIs in a business, that for me was just staggering that, you know, hang on, your CV will always read sacked from Nottingham Forest. Um, but we had to sell the centre forward, bit of Sombra Longa, who went for 15 million to Middlesbrough. And that 10.8, 11 million allowed them to balance the FFP side of things. So we knew we would have four to spend. Got the likes of Darrell Murphy and uh, Tendai Dariqua in from Burnley. Um, but we sold a star striker for 15 and spent four. They, they, and we, when we played the last game, we got in there, they were in the bottom three. We had to better results of two teams and not go down. And we had six academy boys. The likes of Matty Cash, who's now a Premier League star in the making. Uh, Joe Wall, likewise. Ben Osborne, Ben Brereton went for seven million to Blackburn. We had really young players in the team in that final day. So we played youth and we got the job done. Um, and here you go, you know, the following season. Now, Tony Mowbray and Blackburn went down and we stayed up. And I get sacked at Christmas and Tony Mowbray gets a new contract in League One and he's doing a fantastic job now with Blackburn still there. And that's the life of a football manager, Callum. That, you know, you've, you've hit your KPIs, your mid-table, the squad size has come down, you've done everything asked of yourself. You've sold a star striker, you've not replaced him, balance the books, and you get set. And that's it. And you can't you can't moan, you can't complain. You can show your frustration, of course, by speaking, I hope, very respectfully. But that's football. And all you have to do is, if you believe in what you're doing, is put your head down and work hard and let the fans see that you, your work ethic and your approach is consistent. From Forest on to QPR, being a London club and, and closer to home, is that some of the motivations for taking the job, not to dismiss QPR because they're a club with a lot of history, of course. No, it's, uh, I'll be honest, I was out of the game for 15 odd months or more. Uh, never not worked in my life from leaving school. I'd never had a day of not working, Callum. Um, so that was a strange experience. Brendan has said to me before, when I left Rangers, he said to me to take six months out. This is advice. And obviously he's a very experienced man. Uh, but I wanted to work, went to Forest two weeks later. Um, so I didn't take it then and I had time out. It was good to reflect. It is good to reflect and look back. And I was very angry at what happened at Forest. Really angry. Made that clear before. And I'm, and I'm talking personally, I'm not talking in the press, but I was angry that we'd achieved the KPIs and your CV will always read sacked. Now, if you're 22nd and you're, you're asked to leave, absolutely put your hand up and say you screwed up. We had achieved the KPIs. So I was very frustrated, very angry. And the first three or four months did me good to get away, play some golf, good friends up in Scotland and, and went to see them. Then I wanted to go, then I wanted to work. I think, I still think the MLS is a really uh, expanding market. It's going to be huge in the MLS. I think it becomes one of the top three or four leagues in the world in, in the next two or three years, maybe three or four years. And uh, I was intrigued, spent time in New York, spent time in Boston with Brad Friedel at the Revolution. Uh, Seattle Sounders, uh, San Jose, Vancouver, etc. So wanted to learn about the MLS and their rules and regulations, um, which I did. Was very close to getting a couple of MLS jobs, and I would have taken them. I would have taken them from the point of view of I like experiences and challenges. Um, uh, it didn't come about because I'd never had any MLS experience, which I found quite bizarre. Because people knew that at the start of the interview process, um, but then. Uh, I spoke to Les, Les Ferdinand, and the QPR job came up. And that was one that 
Um, I knew all about the club, the tradition, passionate club, um, had come through some real problems. Um, but London was a big call. You're right, what you say. London was a draw. I've been away in Glasgow, Nottingham, travelling, and it was nice to be at home. It was nice to be back in London, and it was nice to be at a place where it called on a project. There were going to be some tough decisions and tough times, and I quite like that. A bit like Brentford going in there and, and working with Les and Lee, the CEO and, and the staff, uh, and really giving it a go. In terms of QPR, as, we've, as you've talked about, you're giving it a right good go. I wish you all the best with QPR for the future. Thank I'd you. like to finish with a round of quick-fire questions. First yeah. of all, being um, some non-football ones, favourite film? Favourite film? Oh, I will go for A Few Good Men. Good choice. Favourite band? Uh, Springsteen, the E Street Band. Oh, brilliant. What's your favourite song from them? Oh, where do you start? Where do you start? Hungry Heart. Any of those bought to run, I could read them off. I've been to see him so many times. He's my, for me, uh, untouchable in terms of the music scene. Um, obviously, we're in a period of isolation, staying at home. What's your sort of favourite TV shows to watch, especially at the moment? I've done 24, the full box set again. Jack Bauer, got to love that. I'm now on to House of Cards. Um, so working my way through House of Cards. And um, if I get a chance, I'm not, I'm not one for watching a load of TV. But when you get the odd hour to watch something, I thoroughly enjoy that. In terms of yourself, who were your football heroes when you were growing up as a, as a youngster? Who did you love watching? Ooh. I've got to say, this sounds a bit bizarre. Um, but I told you about Frank McClintock and, and Neil McClintock, my best mate at school. And uh, I love watching that QPR team, 75-76. You know, and I can reel them off now. You can remember your favourite teams. But, you know, from Phil Parks... Give, you, know, you look at it and go, Gillard and Clement, centre-halves, and David Webb and Frank Mancini and Don Masson, Gibbons, Thomas, Bowles, etc. You can reel off that whole team because it was a, a great to watch. I was very fortunate to watch every home game and watch them train as well with Dave Sexton. And as a young player, again, sounds very, very uh, expensive for a young guy. But to watch that level of, of detail, I looked at some as a teacher. I was, I was a kid at school, loved football. But you could see he was a teacher. He knew the game and he, the players learned from him. So he had a really profound impact on me. And uh, they were the team. Although I'm a Spurs fan, that was a team that I thoroughly enjoyed watching. Something I'm interested to ask you, Mark. You mentioned um, Brendan Rodgers earlier on. See, when you're managing Rangers and Brendan's managing Celtic and you've been good friends, you've known each other for years. How does your relationship differ when that happens? Because it must be strange. It must be because Brendan's, Brendan's obviously wrapped up in the passion of the build-up to the game from the green side and I'm wrapped up from the blue side. And um, he obviously has his Celtic roots in his background and um, we're a lot of respect, I think, for each other. I have enormous respect for Brendan and what he's achieved. And you see him what he's doing at Leicester City now, an outstanding job. Um, but it was very much a case of he's got to show his passion to the, to the Celtic faithful. Likewise for me with the Ibox faithful. So it was a strange one because I knew that once they won that first game at Parkhead and what happened happened with the sending off and the injuries, etc. What happened? He had to be fully immersed in the green side. So you shake hands, you had a drink afterwards, of course you do. But you understand what's involved in those games, Callum. And uh, you know, I don't think there's any lack of respect. He made some nice comments about me. I'll always be very respectful of the job that he does wherever he's been. So hopefully that relationship is still very good. Something I want to ask you about, um, 
No, but current managers, I'll ask you about a manager of sort of your era when you were playing football and you were growing up. If you could have played for under any of the great managers, Alex Ferguson, Brian Clough, um, there's just so many to mention, who would you who would you have chosen and why? Wow, that's a great one. The obvious one is would be Sir Alex, for obviously for the success, and I've had the pleasure of, of meeting him many times and chatting with him and drawing on his experience. So there's the obvious answer. Um, but as a kid growing up, Bill Shankly, his passion for the game came through in bucket loads. I was always, I loved his comments. And, you know, when you're a kid and you hear the one about football's not a matter of life and death, is far more important than that. And you, you hear it and at the time, you think, wow. And the way he spoke about the game and his, that brogue, that strong brogue, you know, I, I thought for me, it must be fantastic to play for him. Must be fantastic. And now I've referred earlier to Jock Wallace. I've no idea if Bill Shankly was a. I've no idea. But um, the obvious answer would be Sir Alex. But I think the, the the players that must have played for Bill Shankly must be able to give you some unbelievable stories. The last question I've got for you, Mark, is about management. If a young manager came to you now and said, based on your experiences in the game from academy level to Brentford to Rangers, Forest, and now at QPR, what advice would you give them? If I had to give up, as in one word, but one one key point or in general? Just in general. What would you say? In general, um, work ethic. Absolute work ethic. You have to have it. It's demanded in any industry. So don't think it's not in football. Subject knowledge. You've got to do your homework. As I said, that year round Europe for me and learning and you know reading books and talking and watching and travelling. You've got to have that. And that's the work ethic again, the desire to learn and be better. Um, but I think now the way the game is going, the way society is going, Callum, you've got to have people skills. That's the biggest thing now, that you've got to be able to deal with a range of people whereby, if you refer back to Jock Wallace and Bill Shank in that era, there was none of this. There was no mobile phones. There was no people texting and WhatsApping and, and conversation changing. I think now society is producing a different type of individual, one that doesn't take criticism as well um, and I think you have to recognise and be able to deal with a variety of characters and people so work ethic, subject knowledge and people skills, man management I think is absolutely vital Brilliant Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, it's been an education for myself to be honest with you in football thank that, you <laughs> Not sure about that but it's, been, it's nice to talk about it, thanks for your questions because they've been very succinct and, and as I say I hope the answers were genuine you know, and I had to be a little bit careful on one or two, but I hope you saw that they were very genuine answers. And when I use words like privilege and, uh, and uh, you know, pleasure and that, it, they, they were very generally meant. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, I've just, let's see. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make her 